Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Post-Political Podcast. I'm the host, uh, Derek Britton, and I hope you all are doing well on this Tuesday evening. Um, I'm glad we got a, a couple of uh, podcasts for you this week. We have uh, Today, we have Kathy, and then uh, later on in the week, we'll have Nancy uh, Rivera with Bridge Kids Get Back. So this will be a good week of uh, shows. First off, let's get to the promos. We have the Vermin Supreme Institute. Uh, our purpose is to inspire social evolution through the disruption of authoritarianism, to promote compassion and activism, and to spread the knowledge of redacted history. Through the use of humor, direct action, and mutual aid, we uplift the disaffected, the disenfranchised, and the disempowered. And I'm very, very happy to announce the Love in Action uh, fundraiser we did uh, to help the folks in Reno, Nevada, and the homeless camps uh, there uh, went off uh, this last weekend really well. Um, everything was distributed, and then on Tuesday, they were actually able to uh, distribute some extra um, uh, supplies and in, in, uh, kind of some of the coats and stuff uh, to some folks at one of the local food banks. So that was very successful. And I thank you all for those who donated and those who helped out. Uh, big shout out to Chris Rogers and um, Chris Atkinson. Atkinson. Uh, they both uh, did a lot of work kind of getting this ready logistically. And um, yeah, it went off really well. So uh, thanks to everyone who uh, supported that. And next up, we have uh, Brewed Coffee down in Lexington, Kentucky. If you're down there, check out uh, the Brewed Coffee and Beer Drinkery. Um, I'll put my affiliate link as well in the comments um, so that you can go and, you know, support the podcast, but also support the local business with, uh, you know, you can buy mug shirts, hats, all that stuff there. So uh, that's Brewed uh, Coffee down in Lexington, Kentucky. And lastly, we are doing the promo with the Trans Resource Network of Louisiana. We are doing the Be Gay, Do Crime uh, promo. So you can buy any one of these three pieces of merchandise here. And 100% of the proceeds will go to the Trans Resource Network of Louisiana. Uh, and if you don't want any of the uh, merchandise, you can go right to, directly to that PayPal link uh, there and donate. And they are providing uh, some, some housing and some... Um, just mutual aid in general to the trans and gender non-conforming folks down in New Orleans. All right. So now we can introduce Kathy. So her writing has been has appeared in uh, places like TechCrunch, uh, Vice, Reason, The Daily Beast, and uh, tons of other publications. She's been quoted in you know the New York Times and a few others. Uh, we're going to talk about uh, Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act. Uh, FOSTA, which is the Fight Online Sex Trafficking Act, and how to best decriminalize sex work. So let's bring in Kathy. How are you doing? I'm well. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, thanks for joining. I'm, I'm super happy to, you know, kind of dive a little bit into some policy and um, and also just try really try to understand, you know, uh, some of the, especially you look at some of the names, you know, as I'm reading these off, I'm thinking about this in my head, you know, it sounds uh, uh, like, you know, many different policies that we've seen introduced into Congress, they may name something that they don't typically actually do. And uh, they can they can actually have some counter effects to, to some of these things. So uh, no, I'm just excited in general. And um, I'd love, you know, I'm excited that you can uh, jump on in and discuss some of this with us. So um, I like to, you know, first off, get you to uh, uh, introduce yourself and kind of how you uh, found your way, I guess, to, uh, you know, the third party or wherever uh, you are politically and kind of what was your journey, I guess, to get here? Yeah, totally. So I'm a writer and activist. I have a substack, kathyreisenwebs.substack.com. Um, my newsletter is called Sex in the State and my mission is to destigmatize and decriminalize all things sex. I grew up Southern Baptist in Alabama, very conservative. And 
I remember um, a couple like inflection points in my political journey. One was I uh, was in a politics, it was a uh, constitution and federalist papers class in college. And I don't know, I, I feel like the conservative ecosystem was very like pro-democracy in my, you know, growing up years, I'm 35. Um, and so I remember reading the Federalist Papers about how like democracy done too much can be problematic, right? It, it runs into issues of kind of the many taking from the few. And I was like, oh, that's, oh, that's interesting. And then I stumbled across Ron Paul videos at some point in college. And a friend of mine said, and I was posting about them like, oh, this is so interesting. And she said, if you like Ron Paul, you would like the Mises Institute and Reason. Yep. So I started reading Reason and I was like, well, I really like their like free markets and limited government stuff. I don't know about the sex and drugs situation though. And so I started reading on and got really educated about the drug war and the war on sex workers and nanny statism. And um, yeah, then I, I became a full-throated libertarian, started volunteering with Campaign for Liberty and um, got really involved in the Ron Paul 2012 campaign. Yep. And then it became about like, okay, like this is a consistent ideology of limited government, personal freedom, free markets, economic growth. Um, I love it. So personal autonomy. So how do we get this ideology and these principles and these ideas in front of more people? Specifically, why are women and ethnic minorities underrepresented in libertarianism? And so, I'm a marketer by training and I thought, you know, I really wanted, I really want to market libertarianism to these underserved groups. And so I started to get into, I've like been a feminist for a long time. And, you know, over the years I've become more and more anti-racist. And um, so, so then I was, I was trying to find the ways that libertarianism really connected to feminism and anti-racism, which led me to, you know, now I'm I'm really strongly focused on sex positive feminism and um, you know kind of person like free market um, uh, economic freedom you know where these things kind of uh, personal autonomy self ownership like where these things kind of come together and so that's that's kind of where I'm at now. Yeah, and it's interesting. Uh, you, you were talking about it right towards the end there. Um, you know, one of the things that I uh, recently, or I guess it was uh, late last year, I saw you on was uh, the Feminist for Liberty um, consent culture uh, talk, which it was incredible. I mean, I I, um, I watched through a, a couple of times. I have a few folks that I know uh, as well that are, are were talking during that, and um, yeah, it, it really, you know, it. I feel like. For so long, uh, guns and taxes has been the focus of libertarianism that uh, a lot of folks kind of drowned in that and didn't uh, weren't able to come out of it uh, understanding more than just that piece of it. And I, I feel like um, there's such a broader application of libertarian ideals, especially in, uh, you know, not only just uh, consent in a sexual. We just lost Kathy. Um Hopefully she comes right back. But yeah, I'm just going to finish my thought real quick. Just uh, her talk, I, I, I recommend people go and, and check it out. Uh, it's on the Feminist for Liberty um, uh, YouTube channel. And uh, they did an entire thing on consent culture. How libertarianism is kind of focused around consent culture um, and what we can do to um, 
kind of influence uh, folks who are interested in uh, that consent culture uh, with uh, libertarian ideals and showing that uh, the application is really there to uh, kind of combine the two and be able to have um, broader conversations among consent and kind of help defining what that consent means uh, outside of uh, just a sexual um, uh, relationship. So it's it's very, very good. I, I recommend folks uh, go and check it out. Uh, that that was actually probably one of my first, um, you know, five uh, um, kind of exposures to Kathy and some of the work that she's done. But um, it looks like she's coming back now. Yep. So sorry. No worries. I just uh, kind of finished my thought. I was just talking, uh, basically telling folks to go check that out um, on the uh, Feminist for Liberty uh, YouTube channel because I thought it was incredible. And just even trying to help define and uh, apply uh, consent culture, uh, apply, you know, to more things than just sexual relationships was a really interesting topic. And I, I really enjoyed it. So I just kind of recommended folks go check that out. And um, yeah, I, I think that can kind of lead us into, so we, you know, we, uh, I brought you on to, to talk a little bit about a few different things that I've seen you talk about um, not only on YouTube and, and uh, Twitter, but um, you know, I, I've kind of, followed the links that you've shared and, and try to read up on it my own. Uh, but the first off was uh, section 230 in the communications decency act. Um, and what, I guess uh, let's start off with, with trying to let folks know what that is and kind of what uh, Congress or, or some members of Congress are introducing for legislation to ch try and change that. Yeah, it, it's a big question and I will yeah. try to be accurate and also clear, which is often at odds. Um, but essentially, Section 230 was a, a part of the Communications Decency Act. I think it was the only part that passed. Um, it was written by Ron Wyden. And the idea was essentially without Section 230, platforms have two choices. They can either extremely heavily moderate and be responsible for everything that users do on their platform. So for example, if I do anything illegal on Facebook, then Facebook would be liable for me having done that. And so what Facebook would have to do, if that were the legal standard, is basically pre-approve everything that goes up on their website before it goes up to make sure it's not breaking any laws. Right. The other option is to say platforms can't moderate at all. So you don't have to be liable for what users do on your platform if you just let anything go. And so that's why like 4chan and these other platforms that don't do any moderation at all don't have legal problems because they they can't be responsible for making moderation choices because they're not making any. Right. And so Section 230 basically allows platforms to moderate based on their own uh, desires and their own, um, you know, terms of service. And so what legislators are trying to do and have the first successful Section 230 carve-out was SESTA-FOSTA, which was passed in 2018. Right. And it says, platforms are allowed to moderate um, and aren't legal, legally liable for what people do on their platforms, except if we can make a case that has anything to do with sex trafficking. And so the problem with this is that because sex trafficking is so broadly defined that anything really to do with sex could be construed as sex trafficking, especially if there's any money involved. Right. And so what platforms did in response to SESTA-FOSTA passing is simply purge vast quantities of 
all sex related content and especially booted sex workers off their platforms, which has led to sex workers dying um, because they are not able to screen clients and share safety tips. Um, right. Sex educators have been deplatformed after SESTA-FOSTA. So Section 230, I mean, the, the, the kind of little tagline is like, it's, it's, it's what made the internet, right? right? It's what made these platforms able to moderate um, to the extent that they want to. And so the more that we encroach on sex, Section 230, the more we force platforms to either extremely heavily moderate or pull back from any moderation whatsoever. Yeah, and that's I think that's where I've seen a lot of the uh, I guess bipartisan support for this uh, bill. So you have um, yeah, I heard about this first when uh, uh, you know it was brought up by Donald Trump and and kind of that uh, whole side of things to to kind of completely unmoderate you know uh, the internet if if folks are being pulled off for saying things that they wanted that, you know folks to say then. Um, uh, that's wrong and we should not allow Facebook to, uh, you know, they wrongly said to uh, infringe on the First Amendment um, when in reality it's a private business doing whatever they want to do in their own space. But at the, I don't want to get too deep into that. But, um, you know, it, I think this is common among uh, a lot of legislation that does get put put forward is you're trying to do something to protect uh, certain people. Or you're trying to do something to help um a certain uh, group or, uh, you know, a certain uh, uh, person that is being um, treated poorly or, or their rights are being infringed upon. And it can lead to unintended consequences where uh, folks can take the, especially how it's um, being used by lawyers and, you know, how it's, how it's actually being um, used in, a, I guess, everyday uh, litigation. So. Well, yeah. I, I think one of the big problems is that, people are, don't like social media's moderation policies and some of their complaints are legitimate and some of their complaints are not legitimate. There's absolutely no evidence of widespread um, censorship of conservative views in particular by social, like that's just not actually a thing that's happening if you look at any kind of empirical analysis. But people are absolutely right that platforms are arbitrarily and um, without much transparency moderating the content. So a good example is like, you know, sex workers or sex educators who are not violating terms of service are still being kicked off and they're not given any explanation or any ability to appeal. So anyway, people don't like the moderation policies. And so when they, or they don't like what users are doing on the platforms, such as spreading misinformation, um, doing illegal things like that. And, and the DOJ gets all kinds of complaints about illegal activities, but they're not actually investigating 99% of those complaints. And so because the DOJ isn't doing their job, people want to force platforms to do the DOJ's job. So you have a lot of people who want to uh, punish platforms and what they keep running into is section 230 prevents them from punishing these platforms. And so they're saying to legislators, well, we need to get rid of or make carve outs of section 230 so that I can get my way with these platforms. Right. And legislators are, instead of pushing back against that and saying, well, actually that would lead to more problems than it solves. They're just being cowardly and not thinking about it and being like, oh, okay, yeah, let's, let's carve out section 230. Right. Yeah. No, that's, that's a great uh, explanation for it. And it's, it's interesting to me, you know, how, um, 
like you said, this, this piece of policy really did kind of form the internet and that's ever, uh, you know, all of the reading that I've done uh, previous to the, you know, talking to you about this, that's almost how every one of those articles has started is, is this is, this is what really started the internet, it, you know, started a lot of the, how policy shaped the internet, I guess. And how, my question is, is how do we, I guess what's, what would be the right thing to do is leave it alone or is it to uh, reinstate it, I guess, to its original intent or, you know, what is your personal opinion, I guess, on how do we make this work for, I guess, the, the, let the market or let people be able to decide what platform they want to be on. It's a hard question. I don't know if there's a perfect answer for this. I just kind of wanted your opinion on what you feel about it. Yeah. I mean, I'm not going to sit here and say the status quo is good. Like it's not like people, some people's complaints are illegitimate, but a lot of people have very legitimate complaints about the way content is moderated on the internet right now by, by dominant platforms for sure. But I think that we should look at, this is kind of my, one of my hobby horses is I think we should look at the empirical evidence for and against legislation before and after it passes when we're considering it. And when we look at the first and only major carve out of Section 230, SESTA-FOSTA, and its impact on everything, um, it's been extremely bad, right? So before it even passed, law enforcement said, this is actually going to make our lives more difficult because right now when sex trafficking is happening online, um, users and platforms are reporting it to us. And so we now have a window into potential sex trafficking that we can investigate. If SESTA-FOSTA passes, then these instances of sex trafficking will then go further into the dark web where we have a harder time identifying them. Platforms will have the incentive to simply delete users as opposed to reporting the instances. Um, This is going to make our lives harder. And by every... uh, piece of evidence I'm familiar with, it has made actually prosecuting sex trafficking more difficult since SESTA-FOSTA passed. In addition, like I said, it's been a horrible thing for sex workers. It's made our lives more dangerous, more difficult. Um, And so it's also made it more difficult for everyday people to access sex education and good information about sexuality, which is kind of important. in the wake of SESTA-FOSTA, people had their Google Drive files deleted without any um, warning or explanation because they contain sexual, uh, supposedly contained, but you know, it didn't even have to, right? Right. Sexual imagery. And so considering how bad the first carve out of Section 230 has been, I can't really say that I have any reason to expect further Section 230 carve outs to be an improvement on the situation. No, and that's, I think it's important for folks to understand and know, um, like you said, and I, 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 so I'm an engineer by day. So empirical data is something I, I completely, uh, you know, I, I believe in, uh, uh, to a fault sometimes. Um, so I, I think it's, it's a good point that in general legislation that does get passed or is, is, a, you know, on the table to be passed. You should be able to look at um, how this could impact things before and after. And it, what a and concept. Relevant. What's that? <laughs> what a concept. Exactly. And, and I mean, I, I think there's, you You have this uh, kind of, uh, you're at odds with politics, I guess, at that point, because politics are very emotional and you're trying to 
uh, get people to not only uh, elected officials, but uh, individuals who are electing these officials to vote with their hearts and not their minds. And um, oftentimes, you know, like I said, you see uh, some of these um, pieces of legislation hurting the folks that they're actually intended to, to try and help. Um, and I guess more on that and trying to uh, dive down even a little deeper into uh, sex work. How do we, how do we not only allow um, folks to not only um, be in a lot of these platforms, but able to educate folks in a lot of these platforms, but also uh, make sure that folks are are um, safe uh, and and doing so, um, you know, with their own um, under their own consent. Let's just call it so. Absolutely. I mean. <laughs> I think there's a reason that the WHO, World Health Organization, Amnesty International, um, you know, the Lancet, all these organizations have said the key to keeping sex workers safe is and clients safe is decriminalizing sex work. Because in every instance, whether it's drugs, sex, porn, whatever it is, criminalizing a market does not get rid of the market. People are always going to buy and sell sex. People are always going to buy and sell drugs. The only thing criminalization does is make it more dangerous. And that's absolutely true of sex work, right? If I go into a Walgreens and buy Tylenol, I know that they're the, the brand has a reputational risk that if they sell me bad drugs, like that's going to be bad for them. If I buy drugs on the street corner where there is no reputation, there's no accountability mechanism, right? I don't have any uh, assurance that this, these are these drugs are safe. Right. Same for sex workers and clients, right? If, if there's no centralized or at least reputational marketplace for me to identify clients beforehand, check to see what the reputation is, um, you know, tell people who I'm meeting and where I'm meeting them, right? right. Then that's a more dangerous situation for me. And that's exactly what's happened is that as we've pushed sex work further and further underground, it's been more and more dangerous for sex workers to engage in it. And it hasn't limited it at all. The same right. amount of sex work is happening regardless. It's just more dangerous for everyone involved. And so it's really important that sex workers be able to identify and screen clients ahead of time, share safety information online, and report their assaults to police, right? right? That's one of the biggest problems with criminalization of sex work is that when sex workers and their clients have a adversarial relationship with police, then that creates a situation in which uh, violence can happen more often and with fewer consequences. Right. No, and that's... That's, I think, one of the the big uh, pieces that I've heard personally uh, from folks um, is is the the lack of ability to um, do anything about a, a severely dangerous situation that uh, could occur. Um, there's really no, you know, there's no one to turn to at that point because, and that's, you know, that's pushed a lot of uh, really dangerous practices and and, and uh, um, uh, I guess hierarchical structures, I guess, within sex work instead of um, having it out, more out in the open and having it uh, uh, able to be um, reported upon and, and uh, done so in a market that is uh, without that that severe um, power differential, I guess. Right, exactly. So Kamala Harris said, you know, I potentially I'm open to the idea of decriminalizing selling sex, but I don't think that like it should be legal for like pimps to do their thing. Right. 
Well, Kamala Harris is a co-sponsor of SESTA-FOSTA. And after SESTA-FOSTA passed, tons of sex workers went back into pimps control because that became the only way that they could uh, have any safety when they were working. Right. Whereas before they were working for themselves, they were finding clients online, they were screening clients online, being kicked off of those platforms, they then had to go back to pimps for the same protection. Right. So we've empowered pimps by disempowering sex workers, by making it harder for us to find and screen clients online. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And that's, that's awful. Yeah, I, and I, one of the, the pieces as well that um, I noticed, you know, and I, I was unaware of this and kind of ignorant to this before um, seeing, I think it was something that you had put on, you know, one of the social media platforms um, was about decriminalization versus legalization and what the difference is and what those um, might mean to sex workers in the future. You know, if we were to, and, and I, like I said, I was completely ignorant of this and I'm still fairly ignorant of this, uh, but I've, I've learned slowly uh, that decriminalization seems to be the better path. And I just wonder, can you kind of explain why that is, I guess, and kind of the differences between the two? Totally, yeah. Essentially, the difference is um, decriminalization just means that there are no criminal charges for buying or selling or facilitating sex work. And so I just want to make a note here that proponents of what's called the Nordic model or the Swedish model or end demand are calling what they're advocating for decriminalization. It's not. Um, decriminalization means fully decriminalizing. So um, decriminalization is in contrast to legalization where you have a highly, generally highly regulated anti-competitive market right. where essentially you have like a few brothels that are operating legally and then um, everyone else still operates in a fully criminalized market. And so then you kind of have a situation where some sex workers work for these brothels where there's not a lot of competition. And so the brothels have a lot of control over the sex workers and the sex workers are having to hew to regulation that's generally pretty strenuous, like, you know, testing regimes that aren't really practical and uh, maybe expensive or, you know, just different regulations that aren't necessarily set up for safety, but are more about keeping incumbents uh, entrenched and preventing newcomers from entering the marketplace. And so you still have sex, like a good amount of sex trafficking in a legalization framework because you have so many sex workers that choose not to or can't work for the brothels. And right. so they still operate in the black market. And so for those reasons, most sex workers advocate a full decriminalization model where they are allowed to work for themselves or they can contract with other people, um, but it's up to them. And they can they get to choose, um, you know, their working hours and their uh, the clients that they take. And, you know, for example, some brothels will penalize sex workers for not accepting certain clients. And um, in a decrim model, sex workers would be in charge of these kinds of decisions. So. For these reasons, uh, sex workers generally prefer decrim to legalization. Yeah, and you, I, I mean, I've seen it play out personally in in the state of Massachusetts with uh, marijuana. Uh, so they legalized, and it, there was a lot of folks. And I was again ignorant of kind of the the differential, uh, the different the differences between the two. And I was like, why are these uh, pro cannabis folks? against the way that we want to legalize marijuana in Massachusetts. And I never understood it until it 
after it passed and saw, you know, it's like three companies that own basically all of the shops and, and uh, grow facilities now in Massachusetts. And it's a very select few that weren't the folks that were being harmed by the policies before. Uh, it's folks that were benefiting off of those policies before and now benefiting off of those afterwards. And it's still, I mean, there's still a, a very um, common and, and fruitful, I guess, uh, black market still all over the place in Massachusetts. Um, and like I said, you know, this one example, but I, I've seen it, uh, you know, play out right before our eyes uh, very clearly. And like you said, it, it almost, you know, and we see this with highly regulated markets uh, in general, uh, that, that you see a power shift. You know, there's a lot more power that's um, being put in place with the folks that um, have the means to set up these massive uh, facilities of um, being able to control and, and meet all. I mean, usually to meet the regulation, you need a lawyer or two to understand the regulation before you can get there. So that cuts out the uh, individual that just wants to enter the marketplace on their own. Yeah, I don't know so much about Massachusetts, but I live in California and California obviously has a thriving black market in cannabis and a ton of regulations that have absolutely no bearing in science whatsoever um, around like purity and growing conditions that are really purely about entrenching a few dominant players and keeping out um, any kind of competition. So um, yeah, it's I think it's it's fairly analogous. I think that it's less analogous in that I think a legalization framework is actually better for cannabis than for sex work because, um, you know, when you're just buying a product off the shelves, I think that um, reputational, uh, the, the brand can be really useful. Yep. Whereas I think with sex work, um, it's just harder to see how consolidating into uh, these mega businesses would be like a benefit to buyers or sellers, really. Um, but uh, but yeah, it's it's a similar issue where you've got silly regulations that are anti-competitive and um, smaller players kept out and um, in a thriving black market yeah. and high prices as well. Right. California has really high prices. Yeah, and Massachusetts is seeing the same thing, and that's what's keeping the black market you know thriving. And it it's partially due to like you said, the regulation that's just not based in science. It's you know there's there's thoughts on taxing it based on. Uh, uh, potency and things like that, like just real and like you're hurting, you know, you're hurting folks who need it for pain. Typically, those high potency uh, uh, strains are, are used for pain management. You're hurting the folks who naturally need it for medical, you know, a strong medical case. Yeah, it's it's just uh, there's there's a lot of um, uh, issues, I guess, uh, around the, the heavy regulation in that market. And, you know, I it's it's um, it's interesting to see, like you were saying, um, how that branding structure and kind of consolidating some of that. Um, it, yeah, I can kind of see how um, in a uh, cannabis market or something else like that, where you're buying a, a product or a good uh, like that, uh, it's very different than buying uh, sex work or anything. That kind of um, transaction, I guess, is, is really not uh, condoning to that. So that it's it's. Like I said, I'm I'm trying to learn as much as is I'm trying to help uh, folks uh, in the audience learn. So I appreciate the you know you going through all of this and and kind of explaining each piece. Yeah, I enjoy it. Yeah. So one of the last things um, you know I wanted to make sure we talk about is you know we we've talked about a couple of things that we can um, I, I think you know especially the Section 230 carveouts and stuff. Um, I think the more people who know about that, I don't see it talked a lot, a ton outside of 
either the porn or sex work industry. Um, I've seen it come up here and there with like Patreon and a few other uh, places like that where the platforms are really pushing for um, uh, no more carve outs, I guess, to the, to the Section 230. Um, but, you know, trying to help uh, let folks know what to fight, I think, is is a big uh, piece of, of uh, what I'm trying to do here. Um, but also, how can we you know, what pieces of beyond, you know, and maybe it's just decriminalizing sex work, I guess that could be the answer here. But uh, what could we do at kind of local levels and state levels to um, put forward legislation on, you know, if we if those states that have, um, you know, ballot measures they can vote on and things like that during uh, election season? Um, what are some of the pieces of legislation, I guess, that you would push uh, to help make the lives of sex workers uh, better? Yeah, I mean, um, definitely any bills to decriminalize sex work um, would, I think, are great. Uh, I believe Oregon is debating a bill to decriminalize sex work right now. There's a group called Decriminalize Sex Work that's working across the country to um, implement bills to decriminalize sex work. Um, I think another issue is getting DAs, district attorneys in place, prosecutors in place who uh don't um, prosecute people for uh, sex work. And yep. so I think her name is Eliza Orleans is running for DA in New York. And she has said that like the war on sex work is failing and making sex trafficking worse. And she's not going to be part of that. Um, I think it's important to note that the war on sex workers is incredibly racist as well, just like the war on drugs is that it, primarily targets sex workers of color, particularly trans sex workers of color, yep. that the arrests for prostitution are disproportionately conducted in poor and minority neighborhoods. Um, and that again, it has absolutely no impact on the amount of sex work that happens and it doesn't make sex work conditions better. It makes them far worse. Um, so yeah, I think one of the most underappreciated levers that we have for making our society more just is prosecutors and district attorneys. Um, we need to to elect or appoint, I, I think they're all, I don't know if they're all elected, but we need to get them in place, people who are um, evidence-minded, right? Like, yeah. are these policies working or are they making life significantly worse for everyone involved? Um, so yeah, decriminalized sex work, um, get get pro criminal justice reform prosecutors in place um and just fight against these in, in incursions into personal liberty like for example utah just passed a bill that requires all tablets and phones sold to someone who lives in utah to come with a porn filter built in and turned on by default so it's not clear that the governor is going to sign the bill, but, and once the governor does sign the bill, if he does, it will likely be struck down by the courts, but still like, it's absolutely absurd that we elect representatives who are pushing forth this kind of anti-empirical, moralizing, anti-free market, yep. anti-first amendment, like bullshit. Um, yeah. I think that a lot of people, when they look at legislators, they're like, you know, how pro-business are they? How what's their stance on abortion? What's their stance on gun control? It's like, what's your stance on civil liberties? Like, yep. what's your stance on, hell, what's your stance on evidence-based policy? Like, are you right. taking actual empirical evidence into account when you're 
putting forth policy. And I think that legislators that don't, that put forth policy that is clearly demonstrably pernicious to society, like that, there should be a political cost to that. Oh, yeah. That's just my my thought. Well, and, and you brought up a good point too. I mean, a lot of these uh, policies that are being put forward and, and even that are getting voted on and, and voted in to be challenged by the courts, that's costing taxpayers money to do so. And it's it's merely just, it's not like the uh, elected official has no idea that it's going to be struck down. They know it's going to be struck down. They're doing it for political points. They're getting these, you know, emo- like we were talking about before, these emotional points that they're against porn, let's say in the, this case in Utah. And at the end of the day, all of that churn, the votes that, you know, that the time that those uh, folks had to go and sit in, in, that's all taxpayers' money. And that's all doing things that are not helping society, that are not help, you know, and like you said, they're not data-driven. They're not doing anything good um, that can be proven, you know, by any sort of metric. Well, let's talk about the actual issues facing Utah, right? Like porn is not in the top 20, right? Like it's not like these legislators don't have real issues to address. They don't have real problems to address. They're just doing this because it's easy and because most people aren't willing to stand up and say like, no, actually porn is fine and I have a right to access it on my devices and device makers have a right to sell devices without porn filters installed if they want to. And so if you have like a very strong um, moralizing kind of special interest group and you don't have a countervailing force, then you get bad legislation. And so I'm just asking everyday people to like be that countervailing force and say like, no, this is, this is bad legislation. Um, There should be a reputational hit and an electoral hit to putting forth bad legislation that kowtows to these uh, crazy special interest groups. And, and I think the, a, a big piece of that, too, is to if if you don't particularly feel passionate about the the specific legislation. So take uh, this porn uh, piece, apply that to whatever you are passionate about and, and think, would you buy a phone that limited say you're uh, big into uh, working on your own car that limited how much you could work on your own car because uh, car manufacturers don't want you to do that anymore? How would you, you know, react then? Just put your, and it takes a little bit of empathy, but it doesn't take a ton. It just takes a little bit of of uh, taking that logical thinking, I guess, to your particular set of interests and try to apply that to your civil liberties and think, how would that affect me? And what would my opinion be on that? And fight it just as hard as you would fight it if it was impacting your specific passion or, or uh, area of interest. Totally. And or think about the principle of the issue. Right. Is it acceptable for a small interest group to force companies to hew to their moral objectives? Yeah. Yeah, it's it's very it's definitely as simple as that. And that's and I think, you know, you hit on this when uh, you started talking about the uh, kind of what brought you to the Libertarian Party. And that's kind of what brought me here as well is it, you can actually rely on principle. There's a principle uh, um, set of values, I guess, that everything kind of uh, goes around and you can always apply that to whatever um, arguments kind of uh, being brought up. And I, I always ask folks uh, that are not. Uh, part of a party that that has that kind of central uh, driven factor, um, you know, 
how do you apply this to other things? Do you just look at the platform? Because, you know, in, in my opinion, there's no uh, specific set values in every other uh, plat, not every other platform, but in some other platforms, there's not this particular um, set of values that can, you can kind of go back to. They, they just, they have a stance on things as it comes at them. And uh, that's very emotional and very, you know, it, it can very quickly get you into a place where you think you're helping someone and then you're actually hurting their civil liberties. So I just, I wanted to make that connection because I feel like it was, uh, it's, it, it feels like it's a part of your driving force, I guess, behind um, your decisions and what you want to support and, and uh, go up against as well. So. I definitely have a strong emotional draw to um values and principles driven thinking um i'm kind of trying to work on it honestly but like yeah it's it's like no i i should get to choose what i consume i don't want the state telling me what i'm allowed to look at on my fucking phone like that's that's a strong moral intuition i have have had for a long time (laughs) oh and that's that's great i um no i and i think this is like i said i I probably learned as much or more than uh, most of the folks uh, watching this. So I, I really appreciate uh, you coming on and talking about this. I want to give you a little bit of time here at the end uh, to go through and kind of promote anything you'd like or, or really talk about anything. Um, it can be pertaining to this you know, topic that we've covered or not, you know, kind of go and um, do what you want and, and kind of uh, get your uh, message out there. Thank you so much. Yeah. My, my, passion right now is my my blog. I'm a writer first and foremost, and I've been writing on Sex and the State. It is at Substack. So it's kathyreisenwitz.substack.com. Um, if you could subscribe to me at the for your paid level, um, really appreciate it. If you can share my stories, like super appreciate it. I'm also on Twitter way too much um, at Kathy Reisenwitz. And then another way that I kind of try to support my work is through OnlyFans. So I'm an OnlyFans creator. I'm at OnlyFans.com slash Kathy Reisenwitz and um, Facebook, Instagram, like Kathy Reisenwitz as well. But yeah, the um, I'm also writing for AVN sometimes doing some reporting on um, civil liberties and the porn industry and uh, sex work. Um, but yeah, like I, I'm just, you know, if you have any tips on stories that you think I should cover or things that I should know, um, definitely interested in that. But yeah, my main thing is is the Substack and just trying to change the culture, change hearts and minds to open people's eyes up to the ways that sex and pornography are just kind of default demonized in the culture. Right. And, um, and how like sex is inherently morally neutral. Right. And so how do we deal with that as a society and how do we govern that in a way that has positive outcomes? Um, That's kind of my focus. Yeah. And and definitely, uh, you know, one small piece to to add is, you know, keeping people safe. I think that's that's one of the big things that we really need to keep in the back of our mind is how is this going to affect the safety of another human being? Um, No, I and I. Like I said, I can't thank you enough. I the the amount of information uh, that you gave. I'm going to go back and re-listen to this again just so I can learn a little bit more. Uh, and definitely check out. Um, you know, I, I've uh, checked out the Substack before, uh, and I'm going to continue uh, reading some of that as well. Um, and I I put the links in the comments so that folks can um, can can go on and do you know take a look at any of the the stuff that you uh, promoted. So I thank you again. You know, like I said, I I learned a ton. 
Uh, I'd love to have you back on at some point. You know, I think there's a lot of uh, different routes we can kind of head down this, you know, this this path. And there's a lot of uh, pieces of legislation when, you know, it comes to November timeframe um, now and then especially next year that we can go into um, specific pieces of, of uh, legislation and stuff. So thank you very much. Um, and I hope you have a wonderful night. Thank you. You too. Thanks for having me on. Yeah. So that was Kathy uh, Reasonwitz. Uh, and like I said, I, I learned so much uh, um, from the conversation. I hope you all did as well. Um, and I hope you all uh, go to the links that I put in the comments uh, to the Substack and the OnlyFans. Um, and if you uh, enjoyed uh, today's episode, you know, come back on Thursday. We're going to be talking to Nancy Rivera. Um, she and her, her daughter actually started a group called uh, Bridge Kids Give Back. Uh, and they're dedicated to feeding clothing and uplifting one homeless unhoused community at a time. Um, I've seen, you know, her out uh, in the middle of the week. Uh, you know, she cooks uh, and, and uh, will gather, um, you know, different clothing and, and, and comforters when it's cold and, and bring it around to the folks uh, in the, you know, Lowell Lawrence area, Boston, Worcester, kind of that whole uh, uh, eastern part of Massachusetts. And um, she does incredible uh, work. I'm really excited to talk to her, and uh, I hope you enjoyed uh, tonight's episode of the Post Political Podcast. Thanks, everybody. Uh -huh.